It's July 26, 2022, and I'm talking with Matt McGregor about the week's acquisition headlines. And the first one we'll do is RIMPAC 2020, Navy teaming warships with unmanned surface vessels from USNI News. And RIMPAC is Rim of the Pacific exercise out in Hawaii. Uh, It looks like they have four unmanned surface vessels that are participating. The Seahawk and uh, the Sea Hunter which actually came from DARPA and were delivered to the Navy earlier this year. And now they're all, they're testing out the Seahawk has um, towed array sonar and, as a sensing payload, and it is tied to the USS Fitzgerald. And the Sea Hunter has an electronic warfare payload teaming up with uh, DDG uh, 1110 William Lawrence. And then the the SCO, the Strategic Capabilities Office, they delivered the Nomad and the, the Ranger. Um, those are the Ghost Fleet Overlord ships. Uh, those are also delivered to the Navy participating here. There wasn't too much more information about what they were up to, but similar stuff. They're talking about, quote, working directly with manned platforms and their capabilities to bring additional sensing capabilities and distributed sensing capability. So that's the first, uh, I guess, thing that they're going to be focusing on there. The Seahawk and the Sea Hunter were fully autonomous, while the the Ghost Fleet USVs actually had personnel on board. But in general, it looks like you know they're staying away from fire control um, and kinetic effects for now. They're just doing the, the kind of sensing stuff. But good to see the the exercises from the Navy. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, the uh, kind of makes sense as as like if you think about the different use cases. So yeah, augmenting you know augmenting the sensors, allowing them to sort of operate more forward, um, and uh, you know basically sort of the, yeah distributed sensing like you said, and that that, that really is important right just from a targeting uh, perspective um, or uh, to even identify you know potential threats that are further out that uh, you may be able to increase your range that you you can detect them depending on what sensors you have on board. Um, it was kind of interesting. A couple of quick takeaways I thought was uh, was the fact that. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're actually doing real work to sort of integrate uh, those sensors. So that feedback and, uh, you know, the, the folks that were on board the Fitzgerald, uh, you know, actually were kind of dedicated to sort of integrating that data in, with the, the other sensors that, uh, that were on the DDG-62. So, you know, I thought that was, that was pretty good. I mean, that's, that's going to be pretty crucial, right, to get that right. And I'm sure there's all sorts of, you know, kinks and issues that'll, be identified there about oh, okay we have this what if we don't get that data you know does it how much does it decrease the uh, accuracy and all that and, uh, you know and, and that sort of thing you mean well how much does it increase right because they have a baseline well if you don't have the it ship. yeah exactly yeah if you don't if you get used to having it and then all of a sudden you don't have it like you know how does that change your decision or how does it improve your decision making with the additions you know so getting the personnel sort of used to having uh maybe better information than maybe they, they used to get, you know, and sort of like, you know, do you feel more confident, uh, you know, would you feel more confident engaging a target uh, given that, or if you don't have it because maybe comms are being jammed uh, and you can only rely on what you have, does that change it? So just getting that sort of training, I think, um, you know, getting people used to that about the different, uh, uh, different ways you can get information. Uh, the other one though, that was real quickly was the, fact that it was an extremely international uh, exercise. So you had you this uh, Fitzgerald, uh, like we talked about, was sort of leading the controlling the USVs. Uh, it was actually in a task group led by the Republic of Singapore Navy. And then that task group was operating under a two-star Korean admiral. 
so I thought that was really, really kind of interesting and, and really good to see that they're, you know, we're uh, engaging our Asian allies and actually sort of putting them, having them in leadership positions doing some of these uh, command and control things. So, Yeah, well, I assume what they were doing there was trying to get a targeting solution from, you know, the sensor that's on the US feed to the ship, right? Um, I wonder what that, that actually looks like in terms of what's the sensor ranges. Um, how much will the US fees be able to increase that if they're they have the comms? And then, you know, how far of a fire like what's the long range strike? You know, so would they have to are they able to sense out further than they're able to strike at that point with, with these capabilities? Yeah, especially with the Totoray sonar, when you think about the ASW mission. Uh, that's pretty interesting because I think normally today, right, they have to launch a helicopter and sort of drop drop a, a, a sonar buoy or, you know, you actually have to have like a larger ship out there. So the fact you can maybe sort of get these smaller UA, UA, uh, or USDs with Totoray sonar out there, I mean, that could really help with uh, submarine detection. The other one was electronic warfare payload. So that one's kind of interesting. Um, you can definitely see some potential there for an offensive kind of aspect if you're trying to get an aircraft through a space and maybe you send out a bunch of a swarm of USVs that just have a lot of electronic warfare uh, capability. You could, you could really kind of, uh, you know, give them an opening at least to get through and maybe launch some anti-radiation missiles or something. So yeah, all kinds of interesting ways of deploying this. Yeah. There's another potential gap filler for the growlers that are, <laughs> yeah. I guess getting decommissioned, right? <laughs> so right. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, actually, I, I'm not really sure. Did we hear whether Congress is going to let them decommission those? Like, there's like half of the the Navy's Growler fleet. I yeah, I don't recall on that one if they if they gave the word on that. I think it was I think it was a was a delayed retirement too. So I don't know. Maybe they got partial. But yeah, no, I think about. Next one we'll do. DOD announces first set of projects to receive funding from the pilot program to accelerate the procurement and fielding of innovative technologies, APFIT. So we can thank uh, Representative Ken Calvert for this fund, or at least he drove it home in the FY22. And it was $100 million. The kind of stipulation was for a contractor to be eligible for award from this, um, you have to have less than $500 million cumulative from defense. So you have to be kind of, you know, smaller, more non-traditional 500 million is a lot, but you know, not all that much cumulative, right? So um, there was 10 contractors awarded, they got $10 million each, and won't go through all of them. But one that one that kind of jumped out to me was the the VBAT, the vertical bat <laughs> autonomous UAS from Shield, which actually bought out uh, Martin UAV. So Martin UAV was the one that you know, made the VBAT, Shield AI, bought them. And just recently, you know, we also saw some um, some articles coming out that, you know, Shield AI and Martin UAV were actually testing the VBAT on the Navy's DUG-1000 Stealth Destroyer. So, yeah, I, I guess it's uh, what it is here is a, a single ducted thrust vectored fan. So it can, it's a UAV that can take off and land kind of like a SpaceX rocket here is what they're saying. Kind of vertically, so it's got a very small footprint in terms of uh, takeoff and landing. It has endurance, and I guess the whole idea is Shield AI is trying to integrate their um, autonomous uh, capabilities with that uh, platform, and then be able to network them in a kind of swarm as well. So 
Yeah, that's an interesting one. There's a whole bunch of other interesting ones that I didn't know as much about here, but uh, they're cool nonetheless. And I was glad to see it come out. Yeah, no, it's great to see, you know, I, we kind of knew about this for, for quite a while. I, I wasn't sure, you know, how easy it was going to be to find like ready to ready to buy uh, kind of things that didn't need a lot of sort of procurement um, uh, to militarize them. But yeah, it's really promising to see that this maybe really wasn't that challenging. And it, I think it kind of goes to Mike Brown's point, right? That uh, and, and others who have basically been saying, actually, the commercial sector has a lot of stuff that you can buy if you only decided to buy it. So uh, I think this is like just maybe a little little glimpse behind the curtain of actually, if you were able to go buy something without these big program of records, you know, this might be what it looks like. You'd buy these kinds of things in, in this kind of way. So, yeah. And they definitely kind of shared the wealth here in terms of, I mean, like yeah. every service. And then you also have SOCOM and MDA and DIU. Uh, so it was pretty, they found someone for everyone, it looks like. But, you know, this thing came out in FY22. Of course, we had the the continuing resolution, but then it gets awarded, you know, in July. So this thing's supposed to be kind of a gap filler, but it still took a while to get there. And I think that's pretty common for a lot of these types of innovation funds. Actually, um, I'm sure you saw in the, the new Senate Armed Services version of the National Defense Authorization Act, they're bringing back the Rapid Innovation Fund, which... Yes. Yeah, it's crazy, right? Yeah, like, gonna, so the, the skinny on that one is... FY 2011, they created a rapid innovation fund. I think it was appropriator led or Senate Armed Services led. Either way, it came out of Congress. Um, and DOD never really was requesting funds to it. But essentially, Congress would put in about 200, 250 million a year. And then they kind of discontinued that a couple of years ago. They just decided not to fund it. Um, and now it looks like they're bringing it back. But I, maybe you can tell me a little bit about this because one, they, it looks like they're, you know, really putting the director of small business programs in charge of this and making um, that individual kind of track a lot of the metrics in terms of transitions and and the statuses and reporting. But the other part here was how it gets funded, and it felt it sounded a little bit like Cibber, but it didn't really make sense as much sense to me. The the small business innovation research program it says not less than three point two million of the extramural budget for research, development, test, and evaluation in excess of $100 million shall be used to field technologies under the program. So I'm not really sure what the actual dollar amount of this thing is, whether it's being taxed at a certain rate from programs or whether it's like some kind of dollar threshold, but cool to see it come back. Yeah, you know, I actually went on the, I went on OST's site and looked at the, they actually have a new briefing up on it, but they acknowledge they don't, they don't know uh, the dollar amount, but but they're clearly kind of getting ready to reactivate that. And, and if you look at some of the reports before the old RIF reports and stuff, they actually were pretty detailed in, in what transitioned and what didn't. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to your funding question, it sounds to me, and you know, I think we'll have to watch this a little bit still, but it sounds almost like a tax on a tax, right? Because because Cibber is a tax against all RDT&E programs um, of a certain size. And so it sort of sounds like, well, okay, once you run those numbers, depending on how much RDT&E you have that year, uh, a portion of that then will go to this rapid innovation fund. I think one of the open questions for me is how the RIF will compete, will operate with Raider. Um, Raider was supposed to be a little bit more sort of operator focused, but, you know, RIF, no doubt, given the environment that we're in, will also sort of have that characteristic. So, yeah, I'd be interesting to see how they sort of 
adjudicate those two depending on how much money Riff gets. Um, but yeah, that's a. Uh, good to see um, i mean like like we've talked about right we really want real reform not these innovation funds but at least it's good to see that there's some of these innovation funds that are (laughs) going to be out there in the interim yeah the the bridge to potentially nowhere it it feels like you know they've done this before in the 90s and the 2000s and it's like you get these innovation funds and then they're like well i'm not sure like what's transitioning or i don't have the insight so now we need more reporting and now we need a transition manager to make sure that the program offices are lining stuff up to get something on the other side. And then we stop, <laughs> you know, like or it reaches this crescendo. So I don't know if we're kind of reaching that phase where it's getting to that maturity point and we're, they're going to start focusing on like the transition, the transition metrics. And then, you know, does DOD kind of keep having interest in it? I don't know. Well, that's something I think you, you, we're going to have to watch. I mean, the RDT&E stuff is a little bit easier because you can have you can have folks do some work. And, you know, maybe it progresses, maybe it doesn't. And at least they, at least they're still you know making some progress or getting money maybe that they wouldn't have gotten. But the the app bit is is one thing to look at in terms of you know once you start buying something, there's a little bit of an expectation like buying a real uh, you know product. There's sort of an expectation that you'll continue to buy that if you like it. Um, so it will be interesting to watch, you know, one, does the, does the RIF sort of, you know, provide any kind of RDT and funding to lead into the app fit? Is there any kind of coordination? And then, you know, once you start using some of these things like app fit is, does the program continue to buy it? Does that agency continue to buy it after that $10 million, you know, wears off? So, yeah, I think some of these things we, we sort of have to monitor. I don't think we've learned enough from Raider to tell if it's been effective, um, but yeah, you're right. That's the problem with any of these funds is that they, you know, if they don't, if they don't show performance, then there's not the coalition to keep it going. And then even if you, even if you do have some transitions, it's like, you know, people just get sort of tired of like, well, it doesn't seem like it's achieving the effects we want, but you know, or yeah, I don't know. There's always, it always seems to come and go. Right. So. Yeah. A lot of times, at least in the past and for a lot of the RIF programs, it seemed like, um, it was actually programs that are like they were augmenting regular program, legacy program, budget type stuff. You know, um, that's that was one of the things that it seemed like when I just went through a lot of the RIF awards in the past, they were kind of like these smaller things that hmm. you would otherwise have been doing kind of through through the programs. Whereas at least these newer ones uh, through the app fit, they they tend to seem like they're kind of standalone ish or, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, you know, they're they're adding new types of capability rather than like, are you driving down the cost or adding this new little widget or, you know, um, sealing something in a different way uh, for what, what already exists. Oh, that's interesting insight on the verify. I remember looking through some of them, but I don't think I, I picked up on that. So that's interesting. I mean, it is true though. Anytime there's, there's free money, right. Folks will go after it and be like, Hey, this is something we don't have to, the services will just look at it as like, Hey, I don't have to fund this next year if I can get the, get this fund to pick it up. So yeah, I think maybe that does need to be part of the selection criteria is like, this can't be something you would have funded already. We're trying to fund those things in the seams, you know, those things that wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't have gotten funded. And, and, and really, I think more of these funds should just be focused on the joint stuff. Cause if it's something unique to the service, it's like they do have money, let them, let them go fund it, you know? But. Yeah. I, you know, I, I looked at the riff. I, what I wanted to do, or what I think someone should do, is just look at all the companies that got funded and they reported on, 
and just be like, what happened to them? Right. Because the riff was like up to $3 million, which is some of the, or maybe it was up to $6 million, but most of them were in that $3 million range. But mm-hmm. I think that that would be a good, you know, looking back and saying, did these companies actually grow? Was this like a step way to something like enduring? Or was it just kind of like this one time thing and you're just kind of back to where you were? Um, and so I, I looked at a few of them, a few of the companies, and they, for the most part, were kind of just like level in terms of their funding at a couple, you know, tens of millions of dollars or so um, a year. So I don't know, but that's not, that's anecdotal. But anyway, um, the other yeah, part here is- a good study. Yeah. That would, someone needs to do this kind of stuff. I don't know. We never kind of look back and, you know, learn our lessons from the past. But on the Raider front, they do actually have um, an industry day, it looks like, that they're coming out with. Uh, so that will be held at Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab today, actually, so on July 26th. So um, it's happening today. I guess we'll, we'll hear if anything kind of came of that. But I think, you know, Raider already selected the programs or their proposals for FY22. And then um, I guess there might be guidance on 23 and stuff like that as well. So not really sure who's going to be there or what what's going to come out of it. But, you know, another one, you know, with the Rapid Innovation Fund, it took a long time to get an award through that process. It was a competitive proposal process. Raider seems to be a, a similar way. And so that's another one of my kind of bugaboos on these funds in terms of it kind of sits somewhere away um, actually I read like for the rapid innovation fund within like the first year or two, they got 35,000 or 3,500 proposals, not thousand, 3,500, but that's still a ridiculously that's high number of proposals, lot. right? Yeah. yeah. And that's concerning in of itself. Um, cause you know, like AFWorks, which our next story is going to be on AFWorks at the air force, you know, they had to pull people from all sorts of, uh, different places to help them with this flood of open topic, you know, proposals and awards that they had to do. Um, so it's kind of interesting, you know, does the, do the services really have the ability to kind of adjudicate, like there's a small amount of money and it's got to go to a lot of, or a lot of people are vying for it. Right. Um, maybe that's a good position. Maybe that's not. Yeah. Well, when I was, uh, I was involved a little bit with the rapid prototype fund, um, which was the one that was tied to the uh, middle tier of acquisition. Um, and, you know, it's the criteria for some of these, you really do have to kind of scrutinize the criteria because it's all very well intentioned and sort of like, you know, uh, you know, what's the criticality or, you know, there's like different things like that, that sort of play into it. And sometimes they do ask about follow on, like, is there, is this thing going to actually be uh, deployed and, you know, all that stuff, what's the plan and you know, all that stuff. So sometimes they do ask some of these things and they're good, but it does it doesn't always relate to me. It doesn't always relate back to like the operational need. I feel like some of this does sort of become like what the people on the panel, which can be acquisition people that might be like scientific type people. Um, you don't always get all the operators that you need to sort of really give you that, like what's the most important amongst all these things, right. To, to operations. Um, and so I, I think, I think maybe one thing that deserves scrutiny at some point is like, what is the criteria that's used for this, right? Like for any normal source selection, you'd be able to see that and it'd be really clear. You'd be able to see, you know, you get debriefed on how you did, but like uh, these ones, it's, it seems really opaque. Like, Oh no, we submitted a bunch and here's what came out the back. And I know there was some, there was some funny stuff that went on with our PS selection where we actually had some selected and then 
at the end state, they all changed at the end because somebody senior didn't like it. So, you know, I think, I think that's something to look at at some point. GEO maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of the GAO, they actually, the general accountability office gave a pretty good report on the small business research programs from the air force had success in some areas with new awards process. So it's not, it's not quite that often that you hear GAO kind of actually have success <laughs> in, in the headline, but no. uh, a couple, a little bit of the, the data here, of course, AFWorks kind of took the small business innovation research um, kind of funding uh, and turned it a little different way. Cause there was a conventional way that they would award things. And, and then they kind of made an open topic and they're kind of really pushing for, um, having private funding as well, matching for, especially for phase twos. But some of the data that they came out here with is around 43% of the uh, roughly thousand open topic awardees had no prior federal contracts compared to 14% of the 771 conventional awardees. So they had a couple of conventional, they, they were still doing conventional and they still are. So they were able to kind of compare and they're saying, well, you know, non-traditionals bringing in brand new people is actually more successful with this new open topic award pattern. And not only that, uh, they're actually awarding them faster, uh, 126 fewer days in FY 2020 to award a phase one open topic relative to traditional. And for phase two open topics, it's 40 fewer days in FY 2019. And somehow they collapsed that to 163 fewer days in 2020. So really moving these uh, awards pretty fast. Um, I don't know. I didn't really see too much discussion of the strat five, the strategic finance and the tactical finance, the larger awards that kind of get you further along and a number of companies have gotten those, but um, good stuff overall. So glad to see it's happening. Of course, people say innovation theater about some of the AFWORK stuff, but um, GAO's given some good reviews and I think that's deserved. Yeah, so I, I agree. Actually, one one thing that took me by surprise in that in the GAO report was it had a stat in there about it, it um, that AFWorks had issued forty eight hundred awards in uh, from two thousand sixteen to two thousand twenty. Uh, that, that was that's a lot more than I thought. I, I didn't quite realize that there had been that many. Um, but one one thing on the on the other stats that you had sort of said about the you know forty three percent not having uh, prior federal contracts. And the fact that that on average the open topics had, you know, took between 108 and 126 fewer days. Part of that does seem to correlate to me to the dollars that are being allocated. So if you look at the dollars in the report, the, the dollars going to a conventional award in a phase one uh, go up to about 275k, whereas the open topics only go up to about 50k. And even on the phase two, the conventional goes up to like 1.8 million. Whereas on the open topics, it really only goes up about 750K. So, you know, there is there is some correlation to, yeah, it probably seems right that that more folks without prior contracts would only get like a 50K, whereas those with experience would get like bigger, bigger dollar amounts. But then it's it's also, you know, probably also similarly correlated to the fact that it takes less time to maybe award something for, for lower dollars. So, I don't know. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. But... You know, AFWorks also was using the commercial solutions opening process. I don't know. I think it was probably like half of those or something. I'm not sure. But um, yeah, I, w- I would be interested to see how they did that. Because you heard of the AFWorks people talk about like how they would all just get a bunch of people in a room and they're just like bang them out. But maybe they're able yeah. to bang them out because they knew everything was 50K or, you know, certain amounts of money. 
Um, and it was just justifying within that, you know. So the next ones we'll do a couple of hypersonic flight tests have been done. Uh, first, we'll talk about Raytheon's hypersonic weapon as part of the hypersonic air breathing weapons concept or Hawk that's being run out of DARPA. And I believe AFRL actually has a piece of this as well. But um, Raytheon and Lockheed are kind of competing for this program that's still up in the air. And it looks like Raytheon has had a successful flight test. So it wasn't really too clear from this um, article exactly what happened or what was the duration. Um, but they did mention that there have been four air-breathing hypersonic weapons tests sep- since September. Raytheon's product has been successful both times. And Lockheed has had one successful test and one failure. So um, looks like, you know, not just this one, we've had a couple others, but there's some successes coming through, maybe not at the rate that we would like them, but some good news on the fronts of, of, uh, of the flight tests. And these ones seem to always grab attention from the headlines. Yeah, yeah. And the Hawk one's been around for a little while. That's a scramjet one. Uh, that one that one was like considered in, in lieu of aero uh, back when, you know, you had a sort of hacksaw arrow and Hawk was in the mix as well. So um, that one's been around, but DARPA has been, been working on that for a while. So, um, so yeah, it's good to see. I wasn't sure uh, if that one was actually still progressing. So it actually was kind of encouraging because, you know, you, we do need, we do need multiple options here and, you know, this one may actually, uh, you know, maybe this one, go, you know, gets moved to the front, you know, depending on how everything goes. And I wonder who's going to kind of pick it up. You think that, I mean, if they're kind of working with AFRL, maybe the Air Force takes that on as a program eventually. Yeah, the Air Force was the one looking at it. So I think, I think um, it seems like the Army and Navy are pretty, pretty hard into the uh, hypersonic glide body one. So, yeah, I'm not sure that. I'm not sure how interested they are. So maybe this would be, be one of the Air Force ones, which kind of leads into your next article. Maybe. Yeah. Well, the, <laughs> the hypersonic arrow, uh, the AGM-183A, that one actually had uh, its second successful flight test and it completed booster tests. Um, so the test, that was the 12th time the arrow had flown uh, from a B-52 and the second time it successfully separated from the, the launch aircraft. Um, the first time being in May. Uh, so actually, they're kind of getting them off pretty quickly, relatively. So that's pretty good news as well. Um, but yeah, so the, the Air Force actually, from the setbacks earlier, reduced its funding for the program. Um, but they're saying here with this flight test that um, it reached hypersonic speeds and primary and secondary objectives were met. Despite that fact, um, there's another article where Andrew Hunter, the Air Force acquisition executive, still was saying, you know, well, even if it works, it doesn't mean um, it's going to be the right contribution to the overall weapons mix. And so um, I think he was, there wasn't a lot of information there, but he was kind of, you know, maybe doubling down on what Frank Kendall was talking about in terms of requirements for the hypersonic aircraft. And, you know, you've, you've heard the, the Mitchell Institute, potentially, uh, they bring this up a lot in terms of, you know, these hypersonic missiles, yeah, they're they're great and all that, but they're going to be in the tens of millions each, and that's not going to generate the kind of capacity you need. So they're really kind of hard on, you know, the B twenty one and getting well over a hundred B twenty ones out there. And so potentially, I don't know what's going on with Kendall and and Hunter, but I'm sure they're looking at the B twenty one and they're saying, you know, this might be, you know, we we might want to keep funneling money. That might be the priority area. 
and then we'll see um, how much the arrow gets. Or I don't even know if they're thinking about them in that kind of portfolio thought stream, but potentially that might seem what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I, maybe uh, it, it is a little hard to tell, but the it's clear B twenty one is is like you know highest priority for the Air Force, deep strike. That that is you know uh, in the China theater, I think that's kind of considered to be their bread and butter, especially since since the F thirty five might not uh, might not play as uh, large a role as as, it, as they might want it to, given the ranges and stuff. So yeah, B twenty one. But at the same time, I think you know when you look at some of the applications that even that Russia is using hypersonics in Ukraine, it's against big targets, right? It's against, um, you know, bridges and, you know, larger infrastructure. So you could see it. You could see that maybe um, Kendall and Hunter are sort of looking at this and saying, uh, the fight that we have is really to, you know, take out, you know, SAM sites and to take out, um, you know, maybe some airfields or something, uh, you know, damage airfields. And so maybe hypersonics are just not, we don't still need them in that quantity because most of the targets are not going to kind of require that. Like maybe they're just not, the missile defense is not there where you need a hypersonic to, to break through and you can do it with B-21s and maybe some other things. So, yeah, I think uh, it's interesting to see, but it's clear that they're looking at all the different weapons, looking at the, you know, the threats and, and what uh, what effects they need to need to need to get after, and and just the, I think the affordability is like you said. I think it just comes down to that: is if you if you want to have hypersonics at scale, you're going to have to put a lot of money on the table. So, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, well, related potentially to B twenty one with its kind of family of systems and the NGAD, the next generation air dominance will potentially have its own family of systems of unmanned vehicles. Uh, the Skyborg drone concept seems to be kind of Coming to fruition, the Skyborg, of course, is the Advanced Aircraft Directorate now in the PEO, but um, kind of bringing in those uh, unmanned loyal wingmen. And Valkyrie has successfully been flying the XQ-58A Valkyrie drone uh, for quite some time now, but um, they've had two autonomous drone flights that have proven itself. And uh, the discussion here in this article is basically, and from Kratos, which makes the Valkyrie, is that... Uh, they're going to kind of they're kind of getting out of that you know advanced development and prototyping phase, and they might they're they're ready for a program of record. So I'll be interested to see. Seems like Skyborg as a program might be kind of winding down, and like all those different the autonomy core unit uh, or system for the autonomy, and then the different um, air vehicles from the different companies. I don't know if they're all going to like branch into their own programs of record or do they kind of migrate over to NGAD? I'm not really sure, but it's pretty interesting that they're kind of saying this thing is getting ready for a program of record. And I'm sure the Air Force is kind of lining everything up around that. Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things going on here. One, I don't think any of these will have anything to do with NGAD. Um, I think that's, that's going to be its whole thing. It's a whole other thing, but I, and I think you'll, I think you can expect to see these come, you know, be fielded sooner rather than later. I think where the Air Force was really struggling was they had a lot of things they were going after at once. And and I, I think they really kind of got on to this, you know, this idea that the B-21 uh, needed a, a collaborative um, combat aircraft to fly alongside it. And it's clear that Kendall, you know, they did some analysis and essentially said, you know, the idea appears to be less attractive than we thought it might be um, with the reasoning coming down to values, uh, coming down to value. 
Bombers are by nature large planes, so not only do they carry large weapons payloads, but they also fly at long ranges. Um, but that size can drive costs, and in the end, the Air Force determined it wasn't worth developing an unmanned B-21 counterpart that would be comparable in size to a large bomber. And I think that's what we had always talked about. That's what always struck me. I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, you're going to develop a drone that can fly along with the B-21 and be as stealthy and as long range. I mean, that thing's going to be a, a big old drone. You know, it's going to be a real complex, sophisticated. So anyway, it sounds like that was initially the idea, and now they've sort of abandoned that. And I think what that does is that opens up this whole other range, other world where now we can actually go field some of these attributable things that we've been talking about for a long time. And the Air Force never really put big money on the table, but I think now it seems like now it seems like they will. If they free up that collaborative other you know combat aircraft, that's going to free up money to go after Skyboard and you know Kratos and all these things. And the reason why Skyboard is coming to its end is that remember it was started under Dr. Roper as a uh, uh, a Vanguard kind of thing, and it was an AFRL. So I think now AFRL is ready to transfer that to the either Advanced Aircraft SPO or maybe the ISR Soft SPO. Uh, PO and and then uh, you know let that become a program whatever that looks like so yeah I, I'm really excited about this I, this is where I was hoping the Air Force would go and I'm glad that they've sort of fig- finally figured out like hey you know what we could actually have you know swarms of attributable three to five million dollar drones that actually can do different st- different missions strike capability electronic warfare all those kind of things um, and that can accompany the F-35s and and other aircraft that we have so yeah I'm really excited about this. Yeah, and by the way, the Valkyrie here, they are given some some figures. It is likely to cost between three and five million a piece. But I guess when you add in all the kind of mission capabilities, strike capability, electronic warfare, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, if you add in um, those kind of capabilities, then it, the price could double. Uh, so yeah. t- about yeah. $10 million a piece. Uh, so it's not exactly expendable. I don't know where attributable starts and ends, but you know, I, I guess it falls within within there. And they're saying Kratos could ramp up to 250 to 500 annually. So that's quite a lot. 500 annually, 10 million a piece. Um, we're talking big bucks, big bucks there, right? Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Big, big. I mean, you're right. It's not expendable. Usually, I think is uh, I think is that one. I think 10 million is the max for an expendable. I think attributable is up to like a 20 million. So yeah, this is probably going to be more in that attributable range um, where you don't want it to die, but you're willing to sacrifice it for certain missions and things like that. So yeah, you're right though. That is, if they do 250 a year, that's that's big money. Yeah. Well, 250 million a year. What is that? 2.5 billion um, in procurement dollars there. So. Um, well, if it was 10 million, wouldn't it be um, uh, two point? 2.5 yeah, billion? I'm bad at math. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's yeah. what I said. So thank you for verifying yeah. my math was correct. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah, 2.5 billion is big, 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 bigger money. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not 25 billion, thankfully. Uh, but, uh, but you can imagine that, right? Like the F 35, that's about $10 billion a year the last few years, that enterprise um, in the acquisition space alone. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, 250, five, 500 of those. A year is definitely a lot, but you could imagine needing that at some point if if you start getting into it. Well, look at the capacity, right? That you were saying about, you know, 10, 10 billion for uh, 35, but we were buying, you know, 50, roughly 50 aircraft, right? Maybe, uh, maybe 60. Um, but now we're talking 250. So yeah, in terms of capacity, in terms of the ability to 
to do the kind of the, the vision, the air combat employment uh, vision, the you know uh, joint warfighting concept, all those things that, that have been talked about where you have everything distributed, it may be operating from a lot of different places because you don't want to kind of group everything in one base. Um, having 250 versus 50 or 60 uh, aircraft that can do different missions is, you know, that gives you a lot more options. So pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, DOD definitely needs to be thinking about capacity here going forward. But um, and, and that's actually, you know, going back to the, the innovation fund stuff, it's good to see, you know, procurement type funding stuff, because, you know, when you look back on what happened in the 80s, procurement really took a big, you know, increase there. So in the 80s, they did do the strategic defense initiative and stuff like that. But they they really just ramped up a bunch of stuff that they were they were building at that time, right? The current technology that they had worked on, and to to a degree, I mean, it depends on where you kind of land, but you could do something similar or start, you know, making sure that that kind of procurement money or that later stage money is ready for the newer stuff as well, and just like kind of force it, you know, um, even if it's not perfect, people will figure out, you know, logistics and operations and stuff along the way. Um, and that's actually one of my, my bugaboos kind of is like, you have to plan everything for depot activation. You know, we've always had depot activation problems, but I feel, you know, like, so to some degree, I think these newer programs, you just kind of need to give them the benefit of the doubt and just be like, these contractors are going to be in a crisis mode for a little bit as they figure it out. But, you know, if their business depends on it, they're going to, they're going to figure it out probably. And some of them won't, and you can drop those guys, but the ones who do might, might have a huge impact. New Boeing Defense CEO signals different approach to future fixed price contracts from breaking defense. And so, of course, we've already talked about this in the past that, you know, these programs that they've underbid, potentially they bought in on production for KC-46, Air Force One, uh, the T-7 trainer, uh, the VC-25, the Stingray, um, or I guess that's the MQ-25, right? So the vc is actually the Air Force One. <laughs> but yeah, so he's saying here they didn't he didn't offer any um decline to say whether the company will actually be less aggressive in offering low ball bids in the future programs, but he does plan to take a different approach and learn from past mistakes. And so of course Air Force One they're they're kind of, he's kind of saying, well that was kind of a unique situation with Trump and that was a lot of risk to take on, but we did it because of that situation. Uh but uh, yeah, so I'm not really sure exactly what they're going to be talking about here. These programs are already kind of moving forward. For the most part, they're in production or they're reaching that stage. Um, so I'm not really sure what are the new big programs that Boeing might underbid on um, that are coming out in this way. But I don't know, maybe future tankers or yeah, I don't you know. But yeah, I mean, Boeing does do a lot of stuff with space and, and things too. So I don't know if they're thinking you know, hey, if we ever do another big aircraft or if they're just in general, it's kind of saying, okay, for future business deals, here's how we have to do it. But I did think it was, I did think it was interesting sort of how they pushed back on uh, on Hunter's comments and said, you know, well, we talk a lot and, you know, it is kind of interesting that the SAE would kind of get involved in negotiations or, you know, adjudicating ECPs and things like that. It's like, it's like not exactly what you want if you're the program manager of a, <laughs> yeah. of a program, having the CEO of the company calling your SAE and uh, working through the details. So I, I did think that was kind of fun. 
Yeah, there's a story of the the TFX, the F111 um, in the 1960s. And basically it was like um, all these high level Pentagon people would be having major program decisions on the program and no one would ever invite the program manager. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, Awaiting IVAS verdict, the SASC directs Army to toy with mixed equipping night vision goggles from Breaking Defense as well. And so IVAS, the, the integrated visual augmentation system that Microsoft is producing with their HoloLens for the Army. And, you know, of course, we, we've talked about this as well in the past that I think they're going to, you know, pretty much get rid of uh, or withhold all but, you know, 10% of the money that they requested. A lot of, I think it was in the 400 millions that they requested for procurement of IVAS. And they're kind of withholding that until most of that, until they, they get a report from test and evaluation and get some kind of feedback in terms of what's going on there. But it looks like one of the things from IVAS soldier feedback is, quote, not all personnel in close combat formation should be equipped with IVAS and that equipping select soldiers with alternative night vision and situational awareness equipment could make the formations combat effective. And so the SAS, the Senate Armed Services Committee, is basically saying, hey, you guys zeroed out funding for the night vision goggles. Uh, maybe you shouldn't be doing that. Maybe we should be thinking about mixed equipping these soldiers, which in some respects, I think actually makes a good amount of sense. You know, you don't need everybody on a squad having having the... Uh, the IVAS potentially, there could be that kind of differential advantages, you know, that people could have with different types of things. So you kind of want that mix and roll it out a little bit more cautiously. It, it seems like the, the army was really trying to, you know, go big into procurement with this all at once. But, you know, that does that's not to say that the army was wrong, but um, it looks like the oversight is, is tapping the brakes a little bit. Yeah, I think you're right that in, in terms of a, strategy that survives close contact with the you know different quote-unquote stakeholders uh that probably was not the best uh, best approach especially if you hadn't done these uh you know large-scale exercise i know they had done some of the smaller ones but you know especially if you end in this large one so they probably should have you know done this a little bit more incrementally um and, and, inter and interesting you know i kind of when i first heard about that they were going to zero out the uh the uh, EN, EN, ENVGB um, uh, goggles, I, I kind of thought of them as being very unsophisticated, sort of just like, uh, you know, night vision goggles, you can see some things. But actually, they, you know, looking into it, they actually do have some, uh, some real capability, like they can display waypoints, they can do blue force tracking, uh, they can do battle space imagery, they actually have, have intel uh, feeds and things like that. So they're, you're not completely unsophisticated. Um, so I think it, I think it is there, there is a good question there about uh, is the IVAS the full IVAS capability? Does every single soldier need that, or is it sort of like a squad leader needs it because they need to see certain things and guide the squad? Or um, so yeah, I think this actually is interesting. It does raise some good questions, and especially if they're getting that feedback that maybe in close combat not everybody needs one, uh, that, that maybe keeping that production line. Uh, open and having that that other you know capability is it makes a lot of sense. So yeah, this is this all sounds very reasonable. And it looked like the Senate the SASC added about seventy five million back, while the House added one hundred million back. So it looks like uh, if the appropriators agree with that, they they will get seventy five to one hundred million more this year. So added back in. 
Well, good overall. And I, I hope the program is successful there in terms of OTAs and MTAs, right? Um, it's kind of, it's yeah. going to be kind of one of those flagship pro- programs for some of the, the new types of acquisition methodologies. So um, I think they're doing good stuff and it sounds like soldiers like it, but you know, I think it does make sense to uh, have a little bit of competition, right? <laughs> in terms in, in bringing that on. U.S. Army floating equipment stockpile in Pacific gets its first test. And so that's the Army preposition stock. They have about four of these preposition stocks in the Indo-Pacific area of operation. And then they also have one that is floating. And so that's what this one is mostly about, the APS afloat capability. Um, they tested it out in the Philippines. So it looks like there is actually a good bit of um, international cooperation here as well, which is going to be obviously crucial to any <laughs> any kind of uh, uh, Pacific theater um, operations. Uh, but it wasn't really too much information about exactly how they tested uh, these pre-position stocks or what they were doing. I'm sure they were just kind of, you know, moving equipment and stuff like that. So there's going to be um, that kind of stuff going on. But you know, this, you know, we've heard contested logistics is going to get more and more important. I think that makes a whole lot of sense after what we've seen out of Russia. You don't want to, you know, fall into the Russia trap. So definitely, um, you know, putting logistics kind of first and making sure that you have your pre-positioned stocks and, and all that kind of stuff. And definitely Taiwan and Philippines should be thinking about um, stockpiling stuff as well. But <laughs> um, good to see it happen. Yeah, and I'm sure that is to some extent, uh, you know, some of the, uh, like I'm sure at Kadena, the, you know, munitions uh, uh, bunkers and stuff like that, or, you know, I'm sure they have lots of, lots of stockpiles and things like that. But, but yeah, you do need, you do need these, some of these things to be pre-positioned because especially if you're maybe going to be denied at one location, uh, maybe you do need to sort of set up a contingency airfield uh, on, on one of the, you know, one of the little islands or, you know, at a, at a place that's not a normal operating location. So, yeah, this is really important. And, and this was used, uh, I will say, too, in the, in the uh, CENTCOM conflicts. These were these were used. These were pulled from. And, so, you know, there just are some cases where a conflict erupts and, and these are the only maybe you just don't have any other stockpiles. So um, this is a, a great sort of fallback. And so it, it makes a lot of sense that they were testing it out and maybe sort of seeing like maybe how fast it took to get things from one location to another. So don't, yeah, we didn't get a lot of details, but you can sort of imagine uh, the different ways that they have sort of tested this. Yeah. It makes you kind of think about like Wake Island or something at the beginning of World War II, right? <laughs> these poor, these poor guys were just like pinned down on this Island and they're just like harvesting everything they can to keep one aircraft going for as long as possible. That's they fight off the Japanese for days at a time. Uh, with that, you know, so yeah, you, you definitely, you're know, like, man, if I could have only prepositioned more stuff on Wake Island, those guys could have had two or three aircraft. <laughs> I mean, of course, they would have eventually had to have fallen, but um, it was quite a heroic thing and a huge morale kind of boost at the time uh, when the war started. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even same for Midway, like if we hadn't had the advanced intelligence, uh, you know, we may not have had the time. To, to build up midway the way we did and maybe yeah so yeah there's probably a lot of good case studies through history of like man if only we had had preposition <laughs> well midway was more of an intelligence thing right because they 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 yeah. thought they're going to attack it and then they're just like okay let's make sure that this code word means midway 
So let's pretend like we have a water crisis. Water crisis at target location. Okay, we know you're going to attack Midway. <laughs> so that was more of a, I don't know, I think that was more of an intelligence coup there. Uh, oh, was it a counterintel? I thought yeah. I thought they had broken the code and they knew they were going to attack it. They, uh, I never. No, well, they broke the code and they knew they were going to attack something, but they didn't know what the code word was. I don't. I don't remember what the code word for Midway was, but let's just say it was just like, you know, target X. We're going to hit target X, and you're like, well, what's target X? Is it Midway? Uh, let's just claim that we have a water crisis, and then they say target X has a water crisis. It's like okay, well now yeah, I know okay. now I know where you're going at. So that was apparently the story of Midway because they did they did already crack their codes um, previously. Okay, I didn't know that. I didn't know that counter intel piece. That's interesting. Yeah, cool. Um, Navy offers comments on UCAVs, um, and so that's the unmanned combat air vehicles. And so it looks like we have three different types of UCAVs that they're thinking about. One is the uh, something like the MQ-9s um, and the MQ-25s as well. Um, the second one, the second section or area is kind of like these, uh, the, the Valkyrie that we're talking about, the Kratos Valkyrie, Boeing X-45, Northrop Grumman X-47. So these are kind of like high to medium threat environment types of UCAVs. And then the last set are these smaller vehicles like the Martin UAV VBAT that we had just uh, talked about as well. So... Um, not really too much information, but he, they were, the Navy was kind of going down how they're thinking about three classes of different UCAVs that they might go after. Yeah, it was a little bit interesting. <laughs> it was a little bit interesting to me that the MQ-9, uh, was in that first set, uh, cause it's not really stealthy. Uh, whereas the, uh, uh, the Boeing X-45 and the X-47 uh, do have some no, the, the second, so. the second class were supposed to be stealthy. But yeah, it, it didn't really make sense to me what was in the first class because the MQ-25 and the MQ-9 were both kind of there. And maybe it's because they can loiter and persist a little bit more. I don't know. I don't know, because then the last set is the VBAT. So I, yeah, I, did, I don't quite... I, don't, I think the criteria for this first, second, and last is not entirely clear to me. Although, yeah, they do say that the the second one is a, is a dash strike in a high and medium threat environment. But then it sort of seems like the... The first ones should be even better at that, but clearly MQ-9 would not be better at that. So, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting how they have them set up there. But uh, uh, the one thing that was interesting is the, the reason um, they, they, they also say, like, maybe why the second set, why they have those in there, even though they're stealthy, is that uh, it seemed like maybe one of the reasons is that they didn't have uh, self-defense air-to-air or anti-radiation capabilities. So... I mean, not that that couldn't be added, but I guess I guess as it stands today, that second group doesn't have those. So maybe that's why they're not considered first group because maybe the MQ-9 actually uh, can do that. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a little bit confusing on that criteria, but interesting that they're starting to categorize things in different ways. Yeah, maybe it is about um, or delivering of ordnance in the MQ-9 is the real, because that's like kind of been doing that for a while. Um, I, don't, I don't know if yeah. like Valkyrie has actually demonstrated that kind of stuff yet. But one interesting factoid that they did bring in here in terms of the MQ-25 was that it can it can pass 15,000 pounds of gas up to 500 nautical miles from the carrier. And so the F-35C can carry nearly 20,000 pounds of internal fuel. So it looks like it can boost it to give a range of greater than 12,000. 
1,100 nautical miles, 13,800 miles with that, without aerial refueling. So the F-35C has more range, I guess, than, you know, an A. So that one's going to have about 1,200 nautical miles. And then with an MQ-25, giving it 15,000 additional pounds, potentially, even though it won't be able to deliver all of that in a single go, um, depending on its range. But so I guess it can get an F-35, like what, 2,000 miles? They didn't really put it all together for me. (laughs) I wish they did. But, you know, it's going to extend it a little bit further. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on if you're if you're operating those uh, MQ-25s back, if they're being launched in the, you know, roughly the same area, just like a little bit more forward, then, you know, it seems like it buys it buys the buys the jet some. 500 nautical like, miles. Well, the, the, yeah, so the well, MQ-25. But where is it launching from? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So they might not be launching from that. That would be the difference is they're, if they're launching from the exact same carrier. Right then, then the MQ twenty five can only go five hundred nautical miles, and then it can, right. and then whatever the F thirty five has left over has like expended, it can bring that much on, but it's not going to expend fifteen hundred of its twenty thousand pounds, right, by five hundred nautical miles. So it would have to be kind of like, I don't know, maybe they would base them a little bit closer, or I'm not really sure how they could extend the range even further than that. I mean, I think the only way you do it is with, if is with the ground, uh, you know, having them somewhere in the, in the, yeah. in the uh, base somewhere. So, you know, then they can, you know, get as get as close as possible, give it that extra 15,000 pounds, which probably would get it, you know, 700. You could get even more than that, uh, get, a, get, a, get quite a bit of di- extra distance. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll see how, how that employs it. The one downside is, uh, unfortunately, the MQ-25 can't really help the uh, help the aircraft that, or the Air Force uh, at 35. So, uh they're they're just going to be uh, be out there on their own, hoping for a KC forty six to give them a give them a hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the MQ twenty five is pretty stealthy, right? So, um, right, that, that gives a big leg up over the the KC. Which, by the way, there's some minor league team. I saw a picture. Uh, they had a KC uh, Strata Strata tanker kind of like mascot. It, it was kind of funny, but uh, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, so the last one we'll do here today is Pentagon's DIU director departing reflects on his legacy and what's next from fed scoop um and so that's of course mike brown he's leaving diu by september i believe we'll see um i think if if that's still the time frame and it looks like he is going over to the hoover institute at stanford university and he says he's you know looking forward to spending some time thinking and working with people like hr mcmaster condoleezza rice and and jim mattis and of course, uh, you know, Steve Blank is also there over at Stanford, not the Hoover Institute, but he's over there. So, yeah, you know, he's going back to Silicon Valley. I think he's always been there for the most part, right? He's He's been living out of there. But um, Mike Brown's been doing a lot yeah. of great stuff. He said there are 100, 100 vendors that they've introduced through DIU, and they've had $3.7 billion of follow-on revenue um, I guess that's including from with the, with all the services, right? Most of that's from the services um, partnering. So sad to see him go. I'll be interested to see who will be replacing him. That's the big news, right? They, they put out um, a big solicitation for people. Hey, um, if, if you want to become the DIU director, now's the time to apply. Hopefully you have a, a good resume and you have kind of industry experience as well. But yeah, so we'll see who takes over those shoes. Mike Madsen is the deputy. He'll be there for at least another year. Um, so we'll have some good 
consistent leadership there as well. Looking forward to them kind of continuing what they're doing and hopefully, you know, get a order of magnitude larger budget at some point in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think he took, you know, he took the AAU from, you know, uh, you know, Rod Shaw, of course, you know, handed it off. But I mean, he, he kind of took it and made it, took it to the next level. I think he got the visibility on the Hill. Um, I think you're going to see the Hill, you know, just like DARPA, right? You kind of observe the same trend with DARPA where DARPA had, you know, a number of successes. They were clearly doing doing things that need to be done that nobody else was doing. And uh, and you saw you saw their budget grow, and so that's that's kind of where DARPA merged or you know grew, grew over time. And I think DIU is in the same boat. They started to show uh, that that they were doing things nobody else was doing. It was really important to attract this commercial sector business and to get them involved in some of the DOD problems. And and they did that. And now they're they're going to get more money. I mean, I just think it's inevitable that year on year they will get more money. Uh, Heidi Shu already agreed to to fund it more uh, in the following year. So. Um, so yeah, so it's good. He, he made that happen and now he can sort of support that through, um, you know, through external, uh, you know, research and advocacy and, you know, I hope he does stay involved. It sounds like he will be staying involved with the defense, uh, defense world, but I do hope he keeps pushing that message about commercial acquisition and, you know, love to see him team with, uh, Steve Blank. So I, I, I really do hope, uh, hope those guys, uh, you know, Mike Brown teaches, teaches some courses. I'm sure Steve Blank already has plans to pull him in. So yeah, that'll be good. Yeah. Well, Raj Shah, actually the, the previous DIU director in the X days, he, he went over there and he's working. I think he's, he's working <laughs> on uh, that class with Steve Blank, uh, modern warfare technology. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but he's also doing shield capital or something like that as well. And he's also, a PPPE commissioner, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's a big things, and hopefully, um, you know, as Mike Brown goes over, he really does keep up that advocacy. Because, I mean, I just kind of agree with a lot of what he says in terms of, you know, we need that balance of the fast follower and the first mover strategy, and um, you know, moving towards the capabilities of record, getting rid of a lot of this requirement stuff for commercial technologies, um, having organizational homes that reflect those capabilities of records to a degree. Um, and getting away from programs of record in that respect. So, I mean, if he can keep the the trumpet on that, and making sure people hear the message and start moving on that message. Um, and actually, you know, the Section 809 had good stuff on this as well. Like, we just need to kind of follow through on that most difficult of, of pieces there. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, hopefully that was inspiring for you at the end. So we'll, we'll leave it there and we'll, we'll talk to you next week. But Matt McGregor, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Eric. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again. And until next time.